Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. It was funny, we were on that little tiny boat, and we were catching as much fish as the big guys. Today on our show, we have the second installment in a series on the fishing industry on the Oregon coast, and we take a pie tour of Ann Arbor, Michigan, followed by a summer pie recipe. That's all coming up, so stay with us. First, we'll go to the news with Renee Reed. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. At least 24,000 meatpacking workers nationwide have contracted COVID-19. Several companies say they've done everything they can to protect workers, but a new survey of workers paints a different picture of those efforts. According to the University of Nebraska Medical Center, over 70% of respondents across the region still feel they're at high risk for catching the virus. But only 30% said sick pay is available if they do. Dr. Athena Ramos at the university's College of Public Health expected that number to be higher. I think what we've heard in the media, at least, from companies is that, oh, yes, we're giving everybody paid time off. The workers were reporting that that wasn't happening. Ramos says hundreds of workers also reported pressure from management to come back to work early. The survey found plants are following some guidelines, like offering masks and COVID information in different languages. But until facilities have more oversight and social distancing, many workers said they'll continue to worry about getting sick. Bon Appetit Editor-in-Chief Adam Rappaport's resignation on June 8th sent shockwaves across the food media world, underscoring a long history of systematic racism and inequality. Rappaport resigned after a 2013 photo of him wearing a racist Halloween costume surfaced on social media. Rappaport and his wife, who are both white, were shown wearing brown face costumes meant to depict Puerto Rican New Yorkers. That sparked other accounts of racism within the Condé Nast group and an apology from the company. In a statement titled, A Long Overdue Apology and Where We Go From Here, staff of Bon Appetit and Epicurious wrote that, quote, We have been complicit with a culture we don't agree with and are committed to change. The statement cited lack of diversity in high-level leadership, a white-citric viewpoint, and a pattern of tokenizing and appropriating content from people of color. The release pledged to be transparent and accountable, quote, as we begin to dismantle racism at our brands. Public acknowledgement of these issues came only after a string of reports from staffers exposed deeper roots of racism at the magazines and in the realm of food media industries overall. Columnist Ileana Maisonnet encountered resistance from Rappaport in covering Puerto Rican food. Editor Sola Elwale said staff of color were asked to appear in photos and videos to project an appearance of diversity without getting paid for those appearances, unlike white staff. A stream of other staff members had reported mistreatment, tokenization, and unequal pay in articles that cropped up in Business Insider, BuzzFeed, 
and Jezebel. Meanwhile, many food brands have issued statements and social media comments declaring solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of George Floyd's murder at the hands of police last month in Minneapolis. Brands include Gushers, Popeye's Chicken, McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's. Several brands made donations to anti-racism activist organizations. Food critic Tejel Rao of the New York Times called into question the motivation behind the statements and pointed out that food brands seem to make statements that follow a set of unspoken rules. Quote, never commit to any action and never, under any circumstances, examine your own internal systems and policies or how they might affect your workers. Food system watchdog Marion Nessel posted on her blog that, quote, if food companies really want to promote black lives, they can start with recruiting more employees of color, paying them higher wages, offering better sick leave and health care benefits, and supporting them with child care, education, training, and opportunities for career advancement. Find the full story at eartheats.org. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Christina Stella for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Near the mouth of the Sayuslaw River in Florence, Oregon, a husband and wife team does it all just to keep their seafood business thriving. Producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell share this story, the second installment in their series on the Oregon fishing industry. Running a seafood business on the Oregon coast is no pleasure cruise. Because <laughs> it is time-consuming, changes your life. Amber Novelli and her husband Kyle run Novelli Crab and Seafood in Florence. Is he totally empty, babe? I think so. Some days they're out fishing for salmon on their boat the midnight. You'll have these little tattletale things up in your front window that will start shaking, and then you know you have a salmon on. They also catch Dungeness crab on their bigger boat, the Aquarius. For crabbing, we have uh, 200 pots out in the ocean. So you drop them out there in December with bait in them. Then you go out in the beginning of the season, your pots are really full, so you go out all the time and check your pots. In between trips, they're checking their inbox for the latest from the Department of Fish and Wildlife. We're all set up with emails. They email us all the time, so you're always checking your email to see if there's a new update on what you can catch and what you can't catch. And that's how they keep it sustainable. That's how they keep fish going. On top of all this, Amber and Kyle run a dockside seafood market where walk-up customers can buy fresh fish. I really want to be able that when people come to town, they have somewhere that they can come and get a fresh piece of fish off of a boat. At little markets like this, seafood chowder is a staple. It took me a full two years to get the recipe to taste with that aha moment. And it took a lot of crab picking, I'll tell you. I make it from scratch, fresh, every single day. Those first two years, I was excited if I sold a pot. Now it's changed. Now I'm like at eight to ten pots a day, and it's like crazy. I got whisking elbow from whisking chowder. (laughs) The chowder's taken over my life. To keep their fish and crab supply going at the market, Amber has cultivated relationships with a few other trusted fishers. You know, I'm very picky about who you buy from because some people just don't take care of the fish like others. 
there's a definite way to take care of fish. If they get not enough ice, they're too soft and then they're horrible to clean. They're horrible to sell. They turn into mush and they're a mess. You have to be picky. This business comes with serious economic risks, but also safety hazards. When Amber was young, her best friend lost two family members in a fishing tragedy. That experience stays with her, especially during a rough day at sea. With me, I have to be at peace with it because you just never know. We've been out there. Sometimes I did not think we were making it in, and it's like the first trip that was like that, the first thing I did was I went and bought life insurance. <laughs> and I said, okay, if I'm going down and I can leave each one of my kids $100,000, I'll be fine as I'm going down. She and Kyle have had a few mishaps on their own boats. Kyle went out this last time. He was heading out to the tuna grounds, and on his way out there, as soon as the tuna started biting, he got some on board, but the exhaust started on fire. <laughs> Never mind, he had to come back in, and he, the boat smells like a barbecue right now. So they have their own rituals for inviting good luck. You want to know why that happened? is because I did a Facebook post that he was heading out. I only post if he is on his way in and he calls me and says I have fish. Because whenever I do a post saying he's on his way out, something goes wrong. That's just how it works. That's not the only esoteric rule for fishing trips. Well, I'm not allowed to take a banana on the boat. They all say that. And I don't understand it because, I mean, that's an easy, you know, thing to eat as a snack. Fishermen are low on potassium because they won't eat their bananas. When Amber and Kyle started out, they still lived hours from the coast. They would drive the day's catch home and sell it from their driveway. We were hawking my jewelry to go out fishing on the weekends. We got in from fishing for two days and we would uh, pull up to the dock and we'd load up the totes in the back of the truck and then drive to Bend, get there at four in the morning, get up at seven in the morning, start selling fish. So it, we got really tired really fast. But they were holding their own on the water, even in their starter boat. It was funny, we were on that little tiny boat and we were catching as much fish as the big guys. Amber saw potential in her and her husband's weekend gig. And he was so good at fishing, and he's so good at it, you know. His dream was to do that, but he didn't have the belief system behind him or anyone that believed that he could do it for a living. I looked at him and I said, babe, if you can make money doing this, let's do it, you know. Do you want some gloves? Oh, Kyle, would you hand him some gloves? Wash your hands before you put them on so you won't get all smelly. Now they rely on family to help keep things going on the boats and at the market. So we keep a house full of deckhands. My son DJ, my son Joey, Kyle's son Cody, my cousin Kenny, my daughter Emily, my granddaughter's mother Sam. So everyone's involved. Y'all have four of them in there and they're all busy. You know, helping customers, bussing tables, selling stuff, cleaning crabs. There's just always something. It's never easy. There are no guarantees of success. And now there are more unknowns than ever. 
But as of last August, when things were really humming at the market, Amber was feeling lucky. That's the one thing I love about Florence is these people. They're very welcoming, very supportive, and they really, really help um, me mentally get through all this on the busy days especially. I feel like a, an Italian mama sitting in a house and all these people just coming into the house and they all love my food and they all leave happy and it's like it's like just meeting new people all the time and, and having new friends all the time. That story comes to us from Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell. O'Connell conducted the original research in August 2019 for the Oregon Folklife Network with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected, more at BillRushInsurance.com and Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Listeners, we have so much on our plates right now, and I'm not talking about food. We are still in the midst of a global pandemic, the numbers of deaths rising each day. We don't yet know the full extent of the economic suffering that millions in our nation will face due to the catastrophic job loss from extended closures in so many sectors. And we are in the thick of a necessary and long overdue national reckoning with racialized police violence and systemic racism throughout our culture. I thought it might be good to take a deep breath. This week, I'd like to take comfort and offer comfort in pie. Pie, for many, is a great comfort food, especially in summertime, with seasonal stone fruits like cherries, peaches, and of course, all the berries. Making a pie is part baking, part art project, and part sharing love with those who end up eating the pie. Anyone who knows me knows that pie is important to me. My mom taught me how to make pie crust as her mom taught her. My grandmother had an elegant way of scoring the tops of her pies with a simple wheat design that my mom and I could never quite master. I've always been happy with my homemade pies, but it wasn't until I tried Mark Bittman's recipe and followed the instructions carefully that my pie-making skills moved to the next level. That was in 2006. Before that, I didn't really get how crucial temperature was to getting a flaky pie crust. 
Nowadays, I'm quite pleased with the texture and flavor of my pie pastry, and I really suffer if one doesn't turn out exactly right, which does happen occasionally, usually when I'm trying to impress someone. Because of my high pie standards, I don't usually order pie when I'm out, and I never bother tasting supermarket pies when they show up on a potluck table. But recently a friend of mine suggested that she had visited Ann Arbor, Michigan and explored the town through the lens of pie. At least that's what I thought she said. Maybe they just visited several bakeries. In any case, it sounded like a brilliant idea to me. So I tried it myself, way back in January, before any of the COVID-19 shutdowns in the US. My son was attending an orchestra program in Northern Indiana and Ann Arbor was close enough to visit. So I compiled a list of places in Ann Arbor featuring pies on the menu and headed out with my partner, Carl, in search of a pie pastry that was tender and flaky and full of flavor. First stop, Avalon Bakery in downtown Ann Arbor. Their motto is eat well, do good. Avalon boasts 100% organic flour. Looks like our pie is blueberry, though it does not say. Flavorful crust. Tastes like blueberry. But the filling really sets up nice without being gelatinous. And it has a crumble-type topping. Let me check the crust. I haven't really tried the crust yet. That crust is tender and flaky, and it has a really good flavor. I thought the flavor was excellent. You know what? I think this is mixed berry because I'm seeing something that looks a lot like a raspberry or a... Blackberry? Blackberry. The filling is quite sweet. It might be a little... A little too sweet for me, but... I like it. How's the crust on the bottom? Well, it's not soggy. Definitely sturdy, but but it's not tough. It meets so much of the criteria that I have for a pie crust. For lunch, we decided on Zingerman's, an Ann Arbor destination for all foodies. It's something like a campus with several buildings featuring different types of food. We ordered savory pot pies. The top crust already, it's beautifully shaped and it looks flaky. This is a mushroom pot pie. The crust is so incredibly flaky, but tender in a way that... It's really yummy. It's so soft, it's so tender, it's incredibly flaky. It's got good flavor. And the mushrooms are just savory and herby, nice gravy. Thing about it, these pies, they look small, but they're way too much for me to have for lunch, to have the whole thing. Next, we headed to a strip mall in the northeastern part of town, to Yoon's Bakery. It's a Korean bakery with French-inspired baked treats. Uh, egg custard. This tart is more crumbly than flaky. Very short. It's a short crust. Mm, the custard is great. It's got a little lemony to it. The custard is about three-eighths of an inch thick. It's very delicate, creamy, delicious. Fruit tart, it's a custard base piled with raw glazed fruit, which is raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, and kiwi. Yeah, kiwi. This one's sweet. It's like a cookie. More like a cookie, yeah. This is just one of those classic summer fruit tarts. I thought the egg custard was superb. Yeah. The fruit custard was really yummy too. Maybe wrong season to appreciate fully. Yeah, it definitely the, feels the fruit, like the wrong season for this, but the fruit was good well though. done. Yeah. 
Pies from a company called Ackett's Handmade Pie Company are well known in Michigan. The Ackett's Pie Company was founded by Wendy and Dave Ackett's in 1996. The Ann Arbor Pie Shop is closed now, but wholesale production of the legendary pies continues from their bakehouse in Chesterfield, Michigan. We went to look for them at a fancy grocery store called Plum Market. At the time, we didn't have the correct pronunciation for the name of the pie company, so bear with us. I'm not seeing the uh, shops. There's Hotcakes Bakery. Lilies. Here it is. Wonderful. So that looks like they've got four kinds. Apple, blueberry, blueberry. What I really want is the cherry, but there it is. it's so big. I think it's worth it to get the cherry. I would rather get this size. Oh, a little one. excellent. Perfect. It's pretty cute. With the star in the middle. This pie is, is boxed, but from the outside through the cellophane, it sure looks delicious. We'll check back in with that adorable cherry pie later when we get around to tasting it. For dinner, we headed to Grand Traverse Pie Company. They originated in Grand Traverse County, Michigan, but now have 15 locations in Michigan wow. and Indiana. This is a so, proper pie company. Here we've made it to pie heaven. Cream pies. A uh, beef pot pie. Lemon meringue. Pumpkin. Pecan. Cheesecake. The, uh, the lemon meringue is quite stunning. Yeah, the lemon meringue is beautiful. It's sort of otherworldly. It's exotic alien creature. Beef pasties. Chicken pot pie, beef pot pie. Okay, so, if I may, our choices are lakeshore berry, apple blueberry cherry, strawberry rhubarb, peach mountain berry, apple crumb, blueberry peach, cherry, blueberry, and then... Quiche varieties. Quiches. Ooh. I think I want. What's quiche Lorraine? It's like cheese of some sort, maybe Swiss cheese, I'm not sure. And ham and spinach, that's what I think. I'm thinking I would get the Mediterranean feta. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. Is it a full quarter of a quiche? It looks like a full quarter of perhaps a small yeah. pie. Ooh, very delicate. Tastes as though it's been reheated, which of course it has. Mm, it's got really good flavor, but texture-wise it's a bit saturated, probably because of the reheating. It's nice and flaky, it's just not, it has no crunch. It's too oily or something. It's still really good, and the, the quiche filling is quite good. I'm not feeling good about the ingredients that I'm seeing here. <laughs> I guess they're a big pie company. Palm and soybean oil, palm and palm kernel oil, vegetable mono and diglycerides, sodium benzoate. Yeah, just a lot of extras. I'm looking for butter, flour, sugar, and salt. Okay, now I'm going to try the turnover. I consider this to be like a hand pie. The pastry is very much a pie crust pastry. It's not a puff pastry. And this is a raspberry. The flakes are just falling off of it. Again, the crust is very flaky, but it also has a little bit of that saturated feeling. And maybe it's because I read the ingredients 
but it doesn't taste as natural. But it also doesn't taste like a supermarket pie. I mean, the crust is well-crafted. It's just not well-crafted with butter. And the Yacht Rock in the background. Back at our hotel, it was time to sample the final pie of the day, that Ackett's cherry pie we picked up earlier. This is a double crust cherry pie. The crust is a bit thick, it's a bit thick and underbaked, I think. Not as flaky. Not as flavorful either. Not as tender. The filling is nice. The filling is really good. This is the sixth piece of pie we've had today. No, seventh. I think that might have been too many pies in one day for me. It definitely was. <laughs> so, lesson learned. While a pie tour was certainly a fun way to explore a town, like most good things, pie is best enjoyed in moderation. Summer is peak fruit pie season. I've been making galettes lately. They're a rustic freeform pie where you skip the pie pan and simply fold your pie pastry around the fruit filling, leaving an open middle. I appreciate their simplicity and the way they maximize crunchy pie crust edges and avoid the dreaded soggy bottoms of juicy fruit pies. I've made strawberry rhubarb, and last week I made one with a mix of service berries and gooseberries for the filling. It's so easy. Here are the steps. Make the pie dough in the morning, and we have a recipe and instructions for that on eartheats.org. Wrap it in plastic and stick it in the fridge to chill for several hours. Mix the berries with sugar and maybe some cornstarch. You can mash them up, slice them, or keep them whole. Preheat the oven to 450 degrees. Then roll out the chilled dough into a rough circle. Transfer it to a baking sheet. Pile the berries and sugar mixture in the middle and fold the edges of the pastry over the circle of fruit, leaving at least half of it exposed. Then brush the pastry with milk or cream, sprinkle sugar over it, and bake it in a preheated 450 degree oven for 15 minutes. Reduce the heat to 375 and bake another 15 or 20 minutes or until the crust is a deep golden brown. Allow to cool for 15 minutes or so before serving with a scoop of vanilla ice cream or whipped cream. Make two, so you can share one with someone who could really use the comfort of pie right now. Find photos and details at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, 
Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Amber Novelli, Kyle Novelli, Joe O'Connell, and Carl Pearson. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com.